0: All right, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5. And last time I was in uh, this epistle, I was looking at the wives, and now we're going to be starting to look at the husbands. So let's look at our text. I'm going to be reading from verse 25 through verse 28. It says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her, so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, that He might present to Himself the church in all her glory having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Let me stop there. Let's pray. Lord, this morning as we look at this text, I pray, Lord, that you would show us what it means for us. I pray, Lord, that you would impress it upon our soul that husbands and even present husbands and future husbands would start grasping what the enormity of marriage is and how important an institution it is not only for the church and individuals but even for the world. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see those things today and how special it is to be a husband. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, it's, it's really no mistake that this teaching on the special kind of submission for wives, and now today the special kind of headship for husbands, is placed in the section of Scripture that mentions the practical outworking of Christian doctrine. Specifically, the contrast between the foolish way to walk through life and, of course, the wise way to walk through life. And, of course, the implication of the Scripture is there would be a desire created by God, as the Word of God goes out, for you to walk wisely, not foolishly. The Scripture has brought us to the wise walk of a Spirit-controlled believer and the unmistakable proof of the Spirit's power to produce good spiritual fruit in the life of genuine believers. This is a fruit, of course, that can be seen. The unmistakable spiritual manifestations of the Holy Spirit's filling in someone's life. Marriage is in view. Now that is the place the Holy Spirit of God begins to reestablish the proper roles for the wife and the husband. What sin messed up, what the beginning of sin in the garden messed up, God is correcting by the Spirit of God and His Word, to now reestablish the way things originally were meant to be. So, if you are thinking that the task of wifely submission and husbandly headship is too great a duty for such sinful, weak human beings as ourselves, well, you're right. You are right. None of us can fulfill these imperatives without the Holy Spirit working in our lives so that the process of sanctification in our marriages will continue to grow to represent and imitate our Lord's character. Both the wife and the husband have been given the task of exhibiting Jesus Christ in their marriage. That's our task. The distinction is one only in role. The distinction is one of roles only. That's the only distinction. We still have all the dignity given to us by Christ. We have all the gifts and the graces given to us by Christ. But the roles that God has given men and women, husband and wives, are different. So in the home, Christ's authority is centered in on the husband, not centered in on the wife or on the children, it is the husband's responsibility to see that his God-given authority is exercised in ways that properly honor Christ. a huge task for the husband. The scripture that we are. Examining this morning in these passages are on the Christian marriage relationship. That the Christian view of marriage must be governed entirely by the teaching of the Word of God, the teaching of Scripture, and can only can only be understood as we understand the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ and that the love of He has for the church and his connection with the church. So if you look at your Bibles, you will see in chapter 5, verse number 23, going up to that passage, the husband is called the head, for the husband is the head of the wife. How? As Christ is the head of the church. You can't mix those up. You can't change that organization that has been given by God. But then I want you to notice Uh, Well, I'll I'll come to that. If we ask, if I ask like I asked the women, husbands, today do you want to be a blessing? Uh, Well, here's a great opportunity also for you to be one before the Lord in which way that you would learn, that you would learn what the will of the Lord is concerning your role as a present husband or your role as a future husband. And then once you find it out, to practice it in your marriage every single day. Till your marriage starts looking more and more like what it says here. Of course, that's God's intention for us. I kind of wished when I was growing up I had teaching from the Word of God on what a husband ought to be. I didn't. And uh, anybody who didn't struggles when they get into a uh, marriage situation on exactly what to do. Matter of fact, uh, quickly you find out, I don't know what to do. This is way bigger than I, can, I ever expected. And so when we come to the Word of God, though, the Word of God gives us what we need to properly put things in perspective so we can be the husbands that we ought to to be. See, there is this morning uh, a special kind of headship for husbands. And I want to look at that this morning. Let's look at, in this high calling of marriage, the first of the two things I want to mention today of the special nature of the husband's headship. And I want to start off By looking up to verse number 23, where I read just recently, because the husband is responsible, remember in chapter 5 of Ephesians, he's responsible for imitating the Lord's headship over the church. So it says in verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, he himself being, notice what it says, the Savior of the body. Now that little phrase there is very important and I didn't want to skip over it that the husband is responsible to God to be the head of his home. In other words, headship means leadership. Headship means leadership. It means assuming the responsibilities that go with the authority. If God's made you head, then you have uh, the responsibility to lead. And, of course, leadership comes with many responsibilities. Now, I want you to notice again that phrase, that being the savior of the body. Now, the reason why I want to bring this up, because sometimes it's misinterpreted, the term savior here does not mean, does it, but actually when it, this word Savior is used in Scripture, it does not always mean Christ giving His life for the church and His blood being shed for it. After looking up this word, I discovered that it also is used to mean Preserver. Which I believe is the way it is used here in this text. Also, it is used that way in a passage of scripture that is also misused oftentimes. The passage in First Timothy chapter four, verse number ten, where it says this, for it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. So here it is used in this passage as preserver, which means that He looks after. He cares for. The Heavenly Father looks after the people that He has created in His image. And so in that way, He is the Savior of Of all men, you know, he allows the rain to fall on the righteous as well as the unrighteous. God feeds people, both who are unbelievers and believers, right? He allows them to live. He gives them breath. He gives them some of the benefits of living in this world. See, all those things are God being the preserver of life. So, again, in our Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23 text, it is it's also the same meaning that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who looks after and cares for his church. The context also bears this out. If you look down to verse number 28 of Ephesians 5, it says simply this, for the husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves His own wife loves himself. What what does he do? He takes care of himself. He preserves himself. Verse 29, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Now, so what does the husband do for his own body? He nourishes his body. He cherishes his body, just as Jesus Christ does the church. So the husband is acting like a savior. He is looking after his own body. He is caring for it. He is preserving it. It's more like a saviorship than it is a lordship. Of course, the husband is not saving his wife in the sense of dying in her place as Christ did, no. But he is taking care of her. He is preserving that relationship because he understands it's a very special relationship. That is what Christ does for his church. And that is what the husbands are to do for their wives. The husband's headship comes with this special responsibility of looking after and caring for his own wife. That's a huge responsibility. Because it's not just the responsibility of doing things. It's the responsibility of how you act towards your wife and even how you think about your wife. In fact, the husband is responsible for everything that happens in the home. And as the head of the home he must be in control of his home. But it's more of a caring control than a manipulating fleshly control. He does this first by being a good manager. He's a good manager of his household. See, when the Apostle Paul laid down the character qualities of husbands in the home, he does it prior to men being considered for leadership in the church. In fact, take your Bible's Real quickly and turn over by way of example to First Timothy chapter two, verse four and five, because when the Apostle Paul laid down the character qualities of the husband in the home, he is simply telling us in this text, all men, all Christian men, should be developing in certain character qualities if they even if they never occupy the uh, a leader pos- leadership position in the church. So, so in other words, all men already are leaders. All husbands are already leaders in their home. Look what it says in 1 Timothy 2.4, uh, chapter 2, verse 4. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. And then also down to verse 12 of that same chapter, it says, Deacons must be husbands of one wife and good managers of their children and their households." So, see, yes, the husband is the head of all who live in his house, and he does it first by being a good manager. All right? That is his job given to him by God. right, so a good manager not only recognizes what needs to be done in his own home, in his own sphere, to make it function peacefully, but also knows he cannot carry out all the tasks on his own. So secondly, he is a servant leader. The husband, in other words, should know how to delegate and assign tasks according to need he recognizes in his wife all sorts of abilities because he's been studying her and he realized she has all sorts of gifts from God in which she can use to benefit the whole household so that means the spirit controlled husband knows his wife is suitable useful, helpful, and a wonderful blessing from God. Now, if you start off there, if you start off realizing that the wife that you have, if you have a wife, or if you don't, you may have one in the future, right? The wife that God gives you, you finally are married to, is a gift from God and a wonderful gift from God who is going to help you carry out your responsibility as a servant leader and carry out the household duties that ought to be be taking place in the home so it runs orderly, so it runs peacefully, so it runs that it would honor God. So then a servant leader will exercise his inner strength and his God-given authority not to crush talents, not to crush gifts or minimize the gifts someone has, but to encourage the gifts and to develop them. So if the husband, though, fails to assume the responsibilities that go with his God-given authority, he fails not only his wife and his household, but he also fails to represent the Lord's love for the church where this is all heading. This text is heading to a very specific place. And remember, husbands, you are called to show forth Jesus Christ by the servant leadership that you exercise in your home. You are called to do that. Let me just say this too further if a husband conducts himself thoughtlessly or is callous and even cruel and becomes an oppressor of his wife, instead of showing her that he is her protector and, and that she is his delight, he is actually dispel- displaying selfishness. He is being fleshly. And it could even be said that he has no life of God at all in his soul, and it could be that he is a person that the scripture is describing in 1 Timothy 5.8, but if anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those in his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, now, Just looking at that, the headship of a man is special because it has a special kind of responsibility. That is a very special responsibility. And I'm not going to develop that at this point because I I really can't until I lay out the next thing. Now, so before we can even go on to see how husbands are to behave toward their wives, we once more must look at what, what Christ has done for the church and why he has done it. Because Jesus' example will be what the husband will be growing in. And he'll be growing in this example of how Christ loved the church so that he can more and more imitate how Christ loves us. And how he loves his redeemed people. However, husbands, if your marriage has been primarily centered on you, or your wife, or your children, or your responsibilities, or your goals, or your comforts, or your stuff, well, then you have been trying to live in a way that was never intended for you. See, as we move into this next section of Scripture, let me press upon your mind the biblical purpose of marriage. C.J. Mahaney said something very insightful here. He said, you see, the biblical purpose of marriage, it is not man-centered or needs-centered. It's God-centered. Your marriage is meant to point to the truth of the crucified and risen Savior who will return for His bride. That's what your whole marriage is about. If you don't start there, then all these other things, which other people say in the world say are important, are really not important, those are all secondary to this main thing. That my marriage and your marriage ought to be God-centered. It ought to be God-centered. Now this leads me to the second special thing of the husband's headship found, of course, in verse number 25, and that's this. It has a special kind of affection. The husband's headship has a special kind of affection. Affection. That means the authority, the responsibility, the power given to the husband in his home is tempered by love. And it is the Holy Spirit of God that gives power and also gives love. Look what it says in verse 25. It says, husbands, comma, love your wives. And then it says this, just as... Christ also loved the church. So there must be some understanding given as to this special word used here in this passage of Scripture. And the special word I'm talking about, the special term I'm talking about, is the term love. Because husbands here, this is an imperative, this is a command for a husband to love his wife, with the highest kind of love there is. And of course, that love is God's love to us. That's where we look. And the reason why I say that is because there's different terms in the Greek New Testament uh, for the word love. One of the uh, words for love is the word eros, which we get erotic love for. Now, that, that word means it's a natural love That usually engages the passions and the desires. That's not the word being used here. There's another word, too. It's the word phileo, which means, it's been translated brotherly love, or uh, to be fond of someone. Uh, It's a word used for companionship. That is also not the word used here. But the word used here, of course, is the word agapo which means to have an affection for. It's God's love to us. It is a love that resembles God's love. Now don't misunderstand me at this particular point because eros and phileo are loves that are needed and are good in a healthy marriage. They must be there. They ought to be there. Because, and because marriage is a creation institution, any human beings who are married can have and experience these loves for a good and enjoyable and successful marriage. That's why you and I know people who are not believers who have pretty good marriages, right? And the reason why is because they've learned to implement the erotic and the phileo part of it. They become friends. They become close companions. They, uh, they have an intimate connection with each other and that lasts and they work on that and they make sure nothing, work, nothing messes that up. So there are unsaved people because marriage is a creation ordinance that can have a pretty decent marriage. Now the point I'm making here is that the only one who could have the highest kind of love in their marriage is a believer. This is not a love that anyone could have. This is a special love. Only genuine Christians can understand and have and experience all these loves, ex- especially agapo. That is the special love that resembles God's love. That, this love is to be paramount in a God-centered marriage. It's only for those who are born again into God's family. It's not for anyone else. So this is the way Scripture directs us. Once again, to examine more closely what Christ has done for His church. Now, I hope you never, never, never get tired going back and looking at the gospel and the person who remains the center of the gospel, which is Jesus Christ. I, I hope you never get tired of hearing the gospel. Because you know what? Every time you hear the gospel, the more you learn about it. And every time you're reading scripture, you're beginning to discover the gospels everywhere. It talks about Christ everywhere because Christ is the central person of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. So, see, Christianity is about Jesus Christ, the person. And for us to get to know him, we need to be growing in the Word of God so we can understand who he is and what he has done and then begin to imitate those things he says we can imitate. So what Christ has done for the church. If the love of Christ, which every husband must imitate, was manifest in that he gave himself up to die for the church with an unselfish, sacrificial love. Now look at the passage, verse 25. It says, Husband, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. And what did he do? He gave himself up for her. So Scripture provides help for the husband to love his wife as he ought to love his, lo- his wife. That Christ's great love toward us was a sacrificial love. It was a supreme affection that impelled Christ to give Himself up for the church. And it is this same supreme affection that is to be felt by the husbands toward their wives. You see how impossible this would be without God's Spirit and His Word. See, we are too quickly ready to hide, tail it, and run when problems start. That's why the divorce rate is so high. People don't work on it. And some don't even have the first two kind of loves in their marriage. They just have an animal attraction that they meet each other with and that's it. And it doesn't last very long. Because, you know what happens? Reality sets in. Right? See, reality does definitely challenge your marriage. Because the bill's got to be paid. People have to go to work. Things got to be fixed. You know, people get sick. Got to go to school. All kinds of stuff have to go on in the home to make it run. And your heart has to be checked. Attitudes have to be checked. All kinds of things have to be going on for a husband to carry this out, to have a supreme affection toward his wife. So the husband's headship must reflect Christ's headship over the church in the love of Jesus Christ for his church. So headship then is not primarily authority nor is it merely leadership on which one assumes responsibilities well i go to work every day that's that's what i'm supposed to do i'm going to sit here and with the clicker and just fall asleep until tomorrow when i get up for work again that's that's all no that is that is very far from what the lord called us to see Instead, it is a loving leadership so deeply influenced by the love of Jesus Christ that the husband is, is at length able to love his wife as Christ loved the church, and that is enough to die for her, enough to sacrifice what he must for her in order to imitate how God loves him. So Christ is... The husband of the church. And how does Christ love his bride? How does he love his bride? See, Christ is the head of the church. He is the husband of the church. The church, us, we are the bride of Christ. That picture is all all over the word of God. And so therefore, Christ dies for his bride. He doesn't die for everybody. He dies for his bride. He dies for all those who will repent of their sin and believe and trust in Jesus Christ as their own Lord and Savior. And they, then they are born again. They come into the family of God. And now, when you're in the family of God, you begin to see from the Word of God how deeply and affectionately God loved, loved you before the world was created and afterwards and in the future. You're just we're just going to be growing in our understanding of the deep love of God for us. That's all we're going to be doing. And we're going to be amazed by it at every step. So how does Christ love his bride? With all her imperfections, with her, all her filthiness, with all her deficiencies and guiltiness and unworthiness. See, in spite of all these, his stance toward his bride was love. She needs to be washed. She needs to be cleansed. Christ is able to accomplish this by his self-sacrifice. See, the Apostle Paul said it like this in the passage we like to use often when we're witnessing. In Romans 5, it says, For while we were, while we were still, what? Helpless. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And then in verse number 8, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, Christ saw us in all our filthiness and all our sin and with all our deficiencies and with nothing to offer him. And even the good works that we thought we had were nothing but filthy rags before God. And he says, you know what, I'm going to show my love to them and demonstrate my love to them by dying in their place. Now, when you become a believer, you begin to understand what he did for you. So then, see, Christ did not see his bride as something glorious and beautiful, but something that needed to be made glorious and beautiful by her husband, Jesus Christ. So Christ had a great concern for his bride, the church. And desire to see her perfect. And to show her off to the whole universe. That's what Christ is going to do. Matter of fact, he is already starting to do that. If you remember back in Ephesians chapter 3 verse number 10. And verse number 11. When I was over there in that passage of scripture. It says this in chapter 3 verse 10. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church. So see, the phase manifold wisdom it means many-sided that the, the use of divine wisdom speaks to a richly diversified nature. It's multifaceted. In other words, God had a heavenly purpose even for this sinful earth, and His plan was to save a vast company of believers in spite of their rebellion. It's God's plan to bring all the nations to walk into the light and the truth of Jesus Christ. The plan included the elevation of divine wisdom and the abasement of human wisdom. So the whole universe is beginning to see his wisdom and now it is specifically being made known through the church. That even the principalities and powers are in awe of what God has done in this great plan of salvation, he is in awe, they are in awe of it. See, the purpose is that all the angelic powers should now see the complex wisdom of God's plan being worked out every single day through Christ's bride, the church. And that's all being done in conformity to that timeless purpose which he centered in and only in Jesus Christ our Lord, like it says in. Ephesians 3.11, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whom, it says, we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. So this wisdom is revealed to the earth through Jesus Christ and only through Jesus Christ. There is no other way... A person can approach God. There is no other channel through which a person can receive divine wisdom except through Jesus Christ. This is where we believers need to focus our attention to keep looking at God's wonderful plan and how the gospel came to us. So what has Christ done in our passage of Scripture in Ephesians 5? He sacrificed, right? He gave himself, it says in the word of God, up for her. That means that sacrifice is a characteristic of his love. It's a love that gives to benefit his bride, the church. That the husband is to love his wife with a deportment that wants to sacrifice for her in order to look after her and protect her. Now, what has Christ done? He's not only sacrificed, but he, had, he bought us. He had to buy us first. That's in the beginning of Ephesians. So, see, redemption is another characteristic of his love, that Christ loves the church as his bride. Not only he saw her in her sin, and then he says, I can sacrifice her for for her, and I can uh, cleanse her of that sin, but I also can buy her from the slave market of sin. I can purchase her from the sinful... uh, uh, the realm of sin that leads to destruction, and I can purchase her from that. Where see, he has to come and buy her before he can; she can be his bride. That's all over Scripture. Like in Acts chapter twenty, the shepherd to the shepherds of the church, he says, he, who purchased, he purchased with his own blood." And then Galatians two twenty, "I have been crucified with Christ." It is. It is It is no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and what? Gave himself up for me. And then Ephesians chapter 1. In him we have redemption through the blood. In Ephesians chapter 2. He brought us near by the blood of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 5, in verse number 2, gave himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God, as a fragrant aroma to God. See, Christ died for the church. He died for no one else. The only way for anyone to enter into the true church is if that person... uh, is saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, right? There's no other way to come. So see, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So husbands, when you see in your wife her imperfections and faults and deficiencies and failures and sins, and you want to condemn her, and you want to argue with her, and you want to squabble with her, and you want to play the blame-shifting game with her. you got to do something. Husbands, you must remember the way in which you yourself has been saved and been endeared and supremely loved by Christ. That's got to be paramount in your minds, in our minds as husbands, because when it is, then you know what we're going to do? We're going to do exactly the same thing Christ did. In spite of those failures, in spite of those sins, in spite of those imperfections, my stance towards you, my bride, must be with a special kind of affection that resembles the love of Christ. Would any wife not want to respond to that? Would any wife not want to submit to that? So see, husbands, if we're going to imitate Christ, there must be something, something of the selfless love and care and sacrifice that Jesus Christ shows towards his church in our life. It must be evident in the husbands as they relate to their wife. Also, something of the respect and submission and devotion that the church shows towards Jesus Christ is supposed to be evident in you wives as you relate to your husbands. That's the purpose of marriage. That is why God has given her to you and you to her. Now, if I were to ask you this morning, what does it mean for a wife to submit? And I answered it like this. Well, submission means to give oneself up to somebody. Simple. But what what about if I says, well, what about love? How is love defined? Well, love is defined like this. To give oneself up for somebody. Submission is to somebody, and love is for somebody. I don't know what that was. Maybe that's the Lord saying you need to pay attention to this, or else. Now, saying all that, and I don't want you to misunderstand that forgiveness and deliverance from condemnation in hell are a means to a further end. The Lord doesn't stop at Him dying on the cross, does He? That's not where it stops. In fact, that's not where it stops for the husband either. That's why, I'm not going to get to it this morning in our text, it goes on to explain certain things, but I, I said now, listen, as we think about the Lord Jesus Christ, what has Christ done for the church? He sacrificed for the church, gave His life for the church, but why has he done that? What further means does have God have in mind for that and for the husband? Well, that brings us to answer the question in our next few passages. In verse 26 and 27. Now, this is why Christ has done what he has done for the church because he had a plan and a purpose beyond, beyond his sacrificial and substitutionary and atoning death on the cross. See, in other words, justification leads to somewhere. It leads to, of course, sanctification. In fact, our text gives a twofold purpose of. The self-sacrifice of Christ. Twofold purpose. What's the first one? Look at verse 26 of Ephesians 5. The purpose of, I'm calling it, present sanctification. So that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. Now, the washing from the guilt of sin Is once and forever. However, cleansing is not only from the guilt of sin and from the power of sin, it's also from the pollution of sin. Even as Christians, sin makes us dirty, it has stained and polluted our natures. We still have remaining corruption. In fact, this is not the only place it talks about this in Scripture. In in Titus 2, verse 14, it says, Who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. That's justification. And then it says this in Titus, And to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. That's sanctification. So when God saves you he begins to sanctify you. So Christ must go on to sanctify his bride and men, we aid in helping the Lord sanctify our wives. And we should not get in the way of that process. We should actually help that process. You see that Christ first died for you and having died For you, he is going to, as it says in our text, sanctify you. To set you apart to God for his own particular purpose and use. And he's doing that with you and I every single day. But he's also going to cleanse you. Meaning that we are not... We are positionally cleansed before God, but we are not practically cleansed before God. You know why? Because when you become a Christian, you bring a lot of baggage into your Christian life. Right? You you bring all the sins into your Christian life. All the bad habits, all the wrong thinking, all gets dragged into your Christian life. All right? God doesn't want you to leave it there. That's got to be all cleansed out. It's all got to be done away with. And so that's what the Lord begins to do In your life and my life. He begins to sanctify you. He begins to cleanse you. I love that passage of scripture in in, uh, Psalm 119, verse 9 through 11. says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. See, the word of God is going to begin to cleanse, and purify the mind of the person so that they would realize very clearly that this is something that doesn't please God. This is a thought that doesn't please God. This is an action that doesn't please God. This is a word that doesn't please God. And as a husband, this is no way to act in my home because it doesn't please God. I need to act how God wants me to act, and it must come from my heart. I need to love and pray that I love my wife as much as Christ loves the church. And I, does it, I do it by the power of the Spirit of God, so I'm walking in the Spirit. I'm not fulfilling the lust of the flesh. Also, we are going to be, in our passage, washed. Sanctified, cleansed, and washed. I love that passage of Scripture in Corinthians. Where, when it, it talks about uh, the conversion of the Corinthians, and uh, Paul comes to them and says, says to the Corinthians, oh, did you not know that unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor people who are uh, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then it says this, Such were some of you in my audience. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. That the job of the Spirit of God is to sanctify you and I and set us apart. Now, sanctification, though, if you notice our passage of Scripture, is mainly done by one thing. It says in verse 26, so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water, with what? With what? With the Word of God. That sanctification in our text is done mainly through the Word of God. It cannot be done apart from the Word of God. In fact, if you just peruse the Scriptures, you will find that the Word of God is the main tool by the Spirit of God that's going to make you like Christ. Even if you go back to the Old Testament, you remember Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 when he saw the Lord high and lifted up? Right? Right? And when he saw God, he saw his uncleanness. Right? So see, when you see God, you're going to see your uncleanness too. And so it brought him to to the place where he was going to be purged and cleansed and then he was going to be used by God. Or you take somebody like Job, who's having these conversations with these friends back and forth, back and forth, and back and forth. And Job's big problem is I want to I want to hear God. I want to, I want to see God. He's struggling with that. If only God was here to talk to, I can get the right answers. Well, God shows up. And when God shows up, in Job chapter 40, Job heard God and saw God and he saw himself and know what he says? I better put my hand over my mouth and not say another word. In fact, I'm going to repent in dust and ashes. See, when you see God, what does it have? It has a, from the Word of God, it has a cleansing element to, that goes to you, that wants you, that, that you desire to want to clean your act up. And is, you don't clean it up, but you realize what God is showing you, and you want to turn from that sin. You want to put that sin off. You want to get rid of that sin in your life. See, it has a sanctifying, cleansing, washing element to it. And all through the Word of God, there are places that when you are studying through it and learning from the Word of God, then what happens is that it has a cleansing element where it's cleansing you from the pollution of sin, from how you got dirty in life, how you got dirty that past week. It has that power and effect in our life. And that brings us to the purpose of God in, in salvation is not just to die in our place and to give His life a sacrifice and a ransom, but it is to sanctify us while we're here. But it has a future effect also. And if you notice in verse 27, it says that He might present to Himself the church in all her glory, having no spot, or wrinkle, or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. In other words, that there is going to be a future consummation in which we are going to be made perfect. So the end result for God is perfection. He's going to make us perfect in His presence. When we drop off these bodies and we go into the presence of God, we will be in the presence of God with no spot, or wrinkle, or any such thing, and that will be holy and blameless before Him, meaning we'll be able to have fellowship with the Lord forever and ever and ever and ever. That You know what that means? It means that the husband's headship is special in that he has a special responsibility and to be a good manager and a servant leader, but he is also a man who has a heart and a mind who desires to know God more. Because the more he knows God, the more he's going to be cleansed. The more he knows, helps his family know the Lord more, the more they're going to be cleansed. So see, he is not somebody who checks out spiritually. He's leading the way spiritually. He's in tune with God. He's desiring God. He wants to know more of God. That's who he is, because that's his responsibility. See, when people struggle with, uh, with their faith in God, it's not because their faith object has failed or is inefficient. It is because they don't have a true knowledge of God and his ways. That's the problem. And that's the problem in marriage also. Faith in God fails only when people have a faulty understanding of God. If you want your faith in God to increase, you must increase your knowledge of God. And the only way to do that is the Word of God. And men, if you are to live as the Word of God says you are to live, as husbands, you must be men of the Word. The frightening statistics today about how many people actually read the Word of God who say they're Christians are frightening. If I were to say to you this morning, how many of you here have read through the Bible from cover to cover every year? How many of you have even read the Word of God this past week? Men, would you say that you're men of the word? Would you say that you have a growing understanding of who God is so you can bring that into your home and purify your family with it and your wife so you can meet the responsibility that God wants you to meet by His Holy Spirit? See, the... Husband's headship is special also because of the special affection he is to have for her, to give. He is giving himself up for her to help purify her and to help her to be presented before God perfect someday. That's part of us entering into the work God's given us for the end even. See, if these things that are before us are true and they are then men we have a huge responsibility and I pray this morning that your understanding of marriage has been heightened today that this is no messing around stuff see there will be a future consummation There will be a future day when we see Christ. That's going to be a glorious day. I love what 1 John says. When he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him, what happens? Purifies himself. just as he is pure. In other words, in God's plan of salvation, there will be no impurity in the presence of a holy God. None. Nothing can get in. This is what Christ does for us. And this is what a husband ought to be thinking about theologically that he does in his own home. He is the head like Christ is the head. He is the one who's the protector and lover of his wife and family like Christ is for the church. He is to imitate that every day. And that takes repentance of sin, that takes humbling yourself before the Lord, that takes changing how the scripture is changing your mind about who God is and God wants you to do. And then when all those things happen, God is sanctifying you. He's making you more him, for himself and what he has called you to do and what he finally will make you. And that is perfect before him. So, see, the responsibility is huge. And the only way that we could carry it out is by the power of the Spirit of God in our lives. We need a lot of prayer, men. And that's only part one. I didn't even get to the details yet. That's the general overview. All right? Believe me, I I think of these things when I'm studying, and I say, oh, my. How can these things take place in my own life? I mean, but they can and they, they will as you as you begin to grow in God's Word, and as you continue to grow in God's Word, you can, never, you can never lay the Word of God down. You can never set it aside, ever. And matter of fact, the more you read it, the more you study it, the more you see the mind of God, the more you, all the other books seem to drop off by the wayside and say, this is the book. There's no man that could have written this book This is a book guided and superintended by God, protected over the ages. This is the mind of Christ. This tells us who God is, what he wants us to do, and what he is doing in this great plan of salvation. And when you see that, you can rejoice because the love of Christ is on you. And that can never be taken away again. And for that very reason, men, you ought to turn around and love your wives. See what she is going to be as the purified bride without wrinkle, without stain, holy and blameless before Christ. See how she's going to be then. And that's how you live with that in your mind as you your own life is purified by the word of God. So see having cleansed her by the washing and water with the word. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, again, I thank you for the Word of God. I pray, Lord, that you would enable us by your Spirit. You have already told us in the Word what to do. Help us now to live the Word of God every single day. Let us be people who are engaging in and thinking about and meditating upon these things. So, Lord, wherever you need to rearrange, wherever you need to correct please do that, Lord, so husbands, Christian husbands, can live in a manner that's pleasing to you. And I pray, Lord, that you would allow us to, even this week, think about those things and anticipate how they'll work out in our life. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together.